they have a very effective insurgency doctrine, which is really understudied the collapse of the Iraqi security forces, which ISIS had a lot to do with over years of insurgency, of bleeding them dry, of really uh, creating fear and terror through their insurgency campaign. In many respects, I think Zakawi epitomizes that, you know, on the outside, this thuggish, brutal kind of guy. But then when you see his, you, you read his writing and you listen to um, his kind of speeches and the, the, the he's very reflective on the strategic uh, context within which he, he was operating. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and on this episode, I'm joined by Craig Whiteside and Hororo Ingram. They are two of the three authors of a book called The ISIS Reader. It is a collection of some really important primary sources about the Islamic State, speeches by the group's leaders, written texts, and other formative documents that, along with the analysis the authors provide, paint a really detailed picture of the group's origins and its evolution over the years. We discuss that evolution in this episode, as well as whether such an understanding of ISIS better equips us to anticipate what form it will take in the future, the nature of the threat it might pose, and the regions that could be most susceptible to the organization's resurgence. Before we get to it, as always, a couple notes. First, be sure you're subscribed to the MWI podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, literally anywhere you get your podcasts. And lastly, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, let's get to the conversation. Craig and Haro, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I wonder if we can kind of start, we're going to dive into this book that you uh, are two of the three uh, people responsible for, along with Charlie Winter, uh, called the ISIS Reader. And we're going to talk about that. But I wonder if you can, um, Craig, why don't we start with you? Uh, give us a little bit about your background and what brought you uh, to this project. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite a pleasure. Uh, I started, um, I start. I was a U.S. Army officer like yourself uh, in, in Iraq when I was, when I first run across the early form of this particular group, the Islamic State. And uh, that kind of inspired in me uh, a curiosity to, to kind of uh, research them and uh, ended up spending time uh, on a dissertation on the Islamic State. And then now I teach national security, but it's still, you know, an important part of American interests. And it's, uh, it's, it's something that uh, been been teaching uh, my military students here at the Naval Postgraduate School, the uh, same kind of topics. Great. Thank you. Um, Haro, how about you? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, th thanks again for um, having us on. Uh, yeah. Look, I started my career in kind of counterterrorism uh, op operations. And so um, I'd, I'd kind of spent more of my career, I guess, uh, as a as a practitioner um, working on these issues than, than as a researcher. And so um, um, so my I guess engagement with this with this group was kind of from a um, kind of from a well, it was, it was kind of from a distance really because I'd worked on um, domestic counterterrorism operations, but you could kind of see the way that those early iterations of the group were kind of influencing, were having this broader 
um, in, in influence upon, um, particularly on the way that the kind of the, the, the global jihadist movement was being perceived. Um, and then uh, uh, I'd, I'd then work for the Department of Defence um, for, for a while before, I guess, committing kind of full time to being a researcher. And it was actually uh, during a trip to the Naval Postgraduate School where I was a visiting fellow that, um, you know, first kind of started these conversations with uh, Craig and um, as part of those travels, I'd, I'd, I'd met with uh, Charlie Winter. Um, and, and, and from those early conversations, we talked about <clears throat> the importance of understanding this this movement through the primary source materials and i guess th through those professional experiences that that we'd all had at different parts of the world in, in 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 different kind of roles we'd kind of seen a certain pattern emerging in regards to the attitude about how to approach primary source materials that kind of sometimes people tended to be hesitant or they or, or, or they were reluctant to engage with those primary source materials and so choosing a reader format uh, for this book was kind of something that, that even from the earliest conversations we'd had, we'd, we'd, we'd kind of thrown that idea around, I guess. And then, um, yeah, uh, we, we, we uh, having worked together for, for quite some time, we started to put this book together. And, um, and yeah, it, we're, we're, we're happy to have it kind of released. And uh, it, it's, it's been a lot of... Um, not just research work, but a lot of kind of professional experiences and, and, and experiences on the ground that I hope that as people read the text, um, th that they can kind of see that. Well, that's great. And, you know, I, I find that fascinating that you, um, that you chose to really highlight the primary sources. And I want to talk a little bit more about that um, in a second, but I think the first big question and kind of to address the elephant in the room is that, you know, this book is new. It came out just a couple months ago um, from Hearst uh, this year in 2020. But it comes out at a time when much of the sort of, certainly I would almost say Western defense establishments, definitely in the United States, um, much of its attention has sort of shifted to, you know, what we're calling great power competition. We're looking at the, you know, uh, the, even the strategic framework that came out in the nineteen or the 2015 National Military Strategy, which sort of uh, created this four plus one framework, was Russia, China, Iran, North Korea are four state-based threats and violent extremism, transnational uh, terrorism as the sort of plus one, which almost felt that even back as far back as five years ago, it was sort of tacked on to these other things that, you know, with the suggestion that maybe it's, it's an additional thing. Um, what, how, what would, I guess, what case would you make that, Hey, this is, you know, now, now more than ever, we need to understand this group ISIS that, you know, we were engaged in a, a, a pretty concerted fight with not so long ago. Sure. Um, having had a background in preparedness or strategic readiness and kind of thinking about these, short, medium and long term capability and capacity uh, issues for 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 defense and for, for, for them um, for the services. Uh, I tend to think that it is important um, for militaries to be postured for um, those kind of greater state threats. The issue is how um, is, is, is how to kind of maintain that readiness and that focus to be able to 
um, um, engage in kind of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations where they're needed, but particularly um, supporting um, partners partners on the ground. And so for for us, I think with the reader um, having an historical context to the current threat is really important. Understanding how the threat we see today um, has emerged and how it has evolved is going to be really important. It's really important so that we don't get into a situation where we we see this this threat emerge and say, wow, we've never seen anything like this before. And we kind of reset um, uh, to, to deal with this, to, to, to deal with the threat that we think is kind of new and innovative. Whereas when we can understand it um, in its appropriate historical and strategic context, it makes it far easier for us to make informed decisions um, about uh, how we should understand the threat. And of course, that understanding will shape the way that we make uh, not just strategic policy decisions, but um, operational ones as well. And so we hope that uh, that the book in trying to contribute to that process, that it um, can be used in a way uh, that, 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 that can kind of position not just the Islamic State threat, but the violent extremist threat um, proportionately and appropriately within the context of the whole range of different threats that, 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 govern, that governments, national security and foreign policy need to be thinking about. That's really interesting. Craig, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, um, on top of uh, this larger strategic picture, I think um, it, it's important. Um, you know, we we pay a little bit of lip service to understanding the adversary, and and if that's if that's a a, lo- a great power uh, or a revisionist power, um, then you know this is a good exercise in training your mind on how to look at the primary sources of these opponents. If you're reading Unrestricted Warfare, which I hear about all the time now in this uh, in the great era of great power competition, but it's people then use unrestricted warfare as this is the Chinese way of war. Well, that is one way, that is one source. And when you, when you, when you look at or use uh, a, a source like the, uh, the ISIS reader, you see all of the different sources and how they uh, kind of put together a really complex picture of the group, even divisions within the group strategically or ideologically. And I think, you know, training yourself to understand an adversary, particularly one that we should be very familiar with, but I would argue, and we argue in the book, that we're, we're not as, we do not understand the opponent we just had. And before we move on to future opponents and make the same kind of mistakes and misunderstanding them, it, it, there is some value in, in looking, there's a lot of value in looking at what we just went through, not from our perspective, but how, how were our opponents? Uh, and then I'd add, other than the value of really deconstructing your opponent, who they are, what their strategy is, which is what we try to do in the ISIS reader, um, the other is advances in information, influence, propaganda, technology. These are these are modern warfare uh, characteristics that I think are you know transcend the opponent itself. It's about the operational environment, and we've got a lot we've got a long ways to come in understanding the current 
uh, environment. And part of that is how how did our opponents use information against us, and what were we successful in countering that? Per, you know, for one example. Actually, I might just jump in on something that Craig just said there that I think is really important is um, this appreciation for primary source materials, not just when the 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 adversary is say a non-state violent actor, but um, to, to understand um, our adversaries. I'm going back to those primary source materials. I think that um, having an appreciation for that and understanding how to appropriately analyze and consider um, and kind of position those primary source materials within the context of the whole range of kind of different materials that we have access to is, is really important. Um, having a methodical approach to how you engage with primary source materials um, is important. There's also something about um, turning to those primary source materials in order to understand um, your adversary, that there is something that that process does for the mentality of the individual, um, for the culture within teams, um, that I think is really um, important for those of us that are working in this national security um, uh, area. It, it, it forces you, I hope, to be um, self-reflective as well and to be really self-reflective on, 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 on um, not just how you understand your adversary, but also how you kind of perceive your own approaches and strategies. And I hope that the book in some way is trying to be a contribution to that, to that process. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, I'm certainly also a big believer in the importance of primary sources. Um, it, you know, it's the quickest route to the truth, um, but it does also require sort of some sort of analytical lens. And when I, when, you know, when I first uh, took a look at the book, I, it, it sort of reminded me of a book that came out in 2005. Um, it was edited by a guy named Bruce Lawrence called Messages to the World, The Statements of Osama Bin Laden, uh, which was a, a wonderful primary source sort of collection of, I want to say it was a couple dozen of his mm-hmm. Um, of his statements. However, it was well sort of curated and edited, um, but it didn't really provide much beyond a brief introduction to each one of them to kind of help give readers, you know, help them build that lens through which to kind of understand it. Your book is quite different in that it provides each of those primary source documents, but then it does engage in some of the analysis as well. How, I guess, you know, sort of two related questions in terms of, of, of structure. Number one, uh, was that a deliberate choice, and did you, you know, did you have to stop yourself from going further and and providing more analysis and and really kind of relegating the primary sources to uh, a sort of secondary role in the book? Uh, and then two, how did you go about? You know, you've got a section in the introduction that kind of describes your choice of sources. I, I wonder if you can kind of talk a little bit about how you picked the documents that you did. I'll let Haro talk about uh, the the selection uh, of the documents, which is which is pretty tough. I think you're you're really hitting on a on something that we struggled with a lot, which is not we did not want to detract from the 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 importance of the primary document, and you can have an unbalanced you know readers readers are are, are popular because they do give us this this access to original thoughts and statements. Um, but what we found, you know, using them as practitioners in the past is that we lo- we didn't understand the context of what these things. We don't understand the history. They're usually different cultures. They're even tra- they're largely translated. And so all of this gets lost 
when there's not enough context. But but I think you're right. I mean, one of the pitfalls for people who are very narrow research areas like myself, I'll speak for myself on that, is, is you know, going way too deep. Uh, so how we kind of, how we tried to answer that dilemma was by putting a lot of footnotes in that readers could could then branch out on their own to either kind of, you know, do critical analysis on our analysis uh, and, and choose to accept it or not, or um, give them some of the historical context or even tie threads from, from statement to statement uh, and fill in some gaps for readers who maybe don't have the depth of uh, awareness of any particular, you know, the surge of 2007 in Iraq. That's, that's quite a few years ago now. And, and we forget how, how people uh, have already forgotten some of these events. And what I'd also add is that our decision about how to structure this book reflected not just ethical considerations, but in fact, legal considerations. And so that was a really important part of um, our thinking here was um, uh, how to present these primary source materials in a way that was not only going to be, we hope, analytically kind of valuable, that it was going to help um, um, students and researchers, but also practitioners, um, but to ensure that, the, uh, that, that, that we felt comfortable with with how we were going to present these materials. And, and, and that's why, um, yes, every chapter features a selection of one, sometimes more, uh, primary source materials that, that, that we felt kind of captured um, certain strategic or operational trends as, 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 um, or maybe a certain type of leader um, maybe a, a, a certain pattern in uh, operations or propaganda for that historical period. And so uh, every chapter begins with a very short introduction that provides that context that Craig was just talking about. Here is the context for what you're about to read. When the reader then um, engages with the primary source material, in a sense they've kind of been um, framed and kind of guided for how to think about what they're about to read. And, and throughout the primary source uh, material, it, its presentation, there, there, there are um, um, sometimes footnotes kind of highlighting where, no, well, this was actually false. Um, this was a misdirection. Uh, this, um, um, this didn't turn out the way that it was described. Um, but then the chapter kind of concludes with an analysis um, of that primary source material. And the great challenge for us was how to narrow that analysis. There are so many different approaches that you can take to, um, to analyzing a primary source material. And so for us, uh, the analysis throughout the book always focused on why is this source important? Not only within an historical context, but also a strategic uh, context. And what does it suggest with hindsight for the way that the group would um, evolve? And so uh, this approach was obviously going to be important 
from an analytical perspective and 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 hopefully it kind of sets up this larger historical um, narrative but it was also important as I said before for those ethical reasons for those uh, legal reasons as, as well um, and and so uh, uh, the advice for example that we'd received in terms of those legal considerations and um, luckily you know our our publisher was fantastic on this point and had sought legal advice and um, and and precisely because of the way the book was presented the kind of issues that could emerge, for example, in the UK or in Australia, um, the advice that we'd received was that, no, because of the, its presentation, that, that that would not be an issue, um, that that would not be an issue uh, for us. So, you know, you mentioned you've got a number of primary sources that sort of, um, you know, reach back over a period of time during uh, the Islamic State's uh, development. Uh, including statements from, uh, you know, two of the people that I think, you know, the vast majority of, of readers will most closely associate with the group, and that's Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. I wonder if you can kind of talk a little bit about um, about those individuals and kind of what, what, what you think readers should take from reading their statements about, you know, how they sort of differed in terms of their organization, or excuse me, organizational different or organizational vision, um, their objectives for the, for the group and for the region in which they were active. Sure, I, mean, I think the thing that really stands out for, for me is the consistency um, that emerges in terms of the strategic thinking, and yes, there's been um, kind of kind of kind of operational kind of kind of shifts, and the strategic vision has has, has kind of um, shifted. But where the consistency lies is in is is in kind of this under this 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 understanding of how to engage in um, revolutionary warfare, and you kind of see the. The seeds of these um, ideas um, emerging in Zakawi's um, earliest uh, speeches, and you can see how they would then kind of um, manifested uh, on the ground, um, obviously uh, in Iraq. And I think that that is—it's actually the consistency that, that 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 we see, the continuation of some really core principles of um, of how to use how to use violence um, against a, against the adversary. I'm synchronizing it um, with a propaganda uh, c- campaign. And when you're when you read these internal documents, and even you, when you read the speeches um, um, of the leadership, I think that this kind of superficial view of the Islamic State movement as just this brutal thuggish um, uh, movement that, that has kind of used kind of just coercion and, 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 and they rely solely on kind of violence. It's very hard to maintain that view after you've actually read through um, um, the, the, the decades of its history. And in, in many respects, I think Zakawi just as a person kind of um, epitomizes that, you know, on the outside, this thuggish um you know, a brutal kind of guy, pr- probably not particularly intelligent, um, was was kind of the perceptions um, of him for obvious reasons. But then, when you see, uh, you know, you, you kind of uh, you, you read um, uh, 
his you, you read his writing and you listen to um his kind of speeches and the the, the his very reflective on the strategic uh, context within which um, he, he was operating. He's very conscious, I think, of, of, of that mix of um, opportunism, um, but also decisiveness. Yeah, you know, it's, it's um, you know, obviously I wouldn't ask either of you uh, to, you know, to judge the morality, I think we're all on the same page about the Islamic State's actions. Um, but if you kind of take a step back and you look at this, here's a group that is weaker than its adversaries by almost any measure militarily in terms of manpower, resources, weaponry, and other material. And they made up for that in a lot of ways with some pretty remarkably um, uh, effective tactical innovations and you know, by strapping grenades to, to quadcopters and things like that. But it sounds like also, you know, again, this is not a moral judgment, but the group deserves some credit for a pretty well thought out and and crafted strategy that it went on to follow and execute um, pretty precisely. It is an appalling genocidal um, movement. I have no question about that. Um, what it has done, um, it, it, it has devastated um, the, the, the region as it's spread around the world. I've spent a lot of time in in southeast asia uh in 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 the philippines in mindanao specifically and you kind of see what um those who've been inspired by this group um um the the havoc that they've caused especially for those communities that they will say that they represent um so we must be very clear on that but there's also um there is a strategic logic at play here and if that strategic logic isn't kind of understood and appreciated and it doesn't help to guide the way that um, this group is kind of confronted, then then we're going to keep finding ourselves um, re- returning cyclically uh, to deal with this threat. Yeah, I'd just, uh, I'd just add to that the, uh, the interest, the pairing, uh, the periods that we cover, the life cycle, of, of this group uh, as it ebbs and flows over a really long period of time. Um, it's interesting to see the strategic dilemmas that each of these leaders have. Zarqawi early on and trying, uh, as you point out, John, trying to overcome, growing, getting from small to big, you know, to make an impact. Uh, and then uh, for his successor, Abu Umar, who really is, is largely ignored in a lot of the literature, uh, he has an even greater strategic problem, which is transitioning an organization that's a milit- solely militant into a hybrid uh, militant political uh, organization. It's always political, but now they have to grow. Um, you know, they're going to grow as an organization, create bureaucracies, and try to um, achieve some type of political foothold amongst uh, their core population and, and just watching them identify the, the, their, their dilemmas, their strategic dilemma that they have to solve and the logic that they use to, to overcome that, again, transcends just this group. How, does, how do strategic leaders correctly assess their operational environments and come up with tactics? Certainly, but tactics that are nested in larger operational campaigns and strategies that have a chance of being successful. And, 
you know, and to a large degree, they were successful in trying to achieve what they were doing for Zarqawi. It was growing into the largest insurgent or, or most powerful insurgent organization in Iraq part of 2006. And for Abu Umar, it's trying to overcome the catastrophes of the Sunni awakening, the Sawa movement that really almost kills this organization. Uh, and then how they how they overcome that is is really an interesting story that just has not has been really neglected unfortunately uh for a variety of reasons but that was one of our kind of goals in this was to to tell that story so having kind of looked at this i mean you even include uh, some you know you look back all the way to the 90s and kind of uh, the antecedents of this this group and this movement um so, and you've sort of painted a picture in this book of a group that has gone through a number of evolutionary stages. Uh, I don't think that's surprising to anybody. We talked about the group strategy, but the strategy also takes place in the context of other actors' actions, you know, to sort of borrow, you know, Helmuth von Moltke's aphorism that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. ISIS and in its various incarnations could have had a particular strategy, but it was also dependent on the actions of governments in the region, uh, uh, intervening forces in the region, particularly the U.S.-led coalition. Um, looking back on it, if this book is to have value uh, from a practitioner's perspective, that's a counterterrorism practitioner's perspective, um, were, are there moments when, when, say, our actions or the actions of the Iraqi government or other governments in the region sort of played into the hands of ISIS? Um, you know... I would argue, you know, that's a tough question, but I, I'd argue that it was at the moment of of coalition success in Iraq where the seeds of failure happened. And you need to be cognizant of that. And I think some people were, but not enough. There's a lot of congratulatory um, kind of discussion about how the U.S. finally figured out counterinsurgency and finally partnered with the right folks. And then, you know, everything, um, everything becomes great. And then all of a sudden, you know, sectarian re sectarianism rears its ugly head. Syria falls apart and bam, the, the Islamic State or the remnants of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, as it's usually described, which doesn't even exist at this particular period, um, you know, magically kind of come back together. And that's obviously that's a that's a fantasy. And so why did we spin this fantasy is is the question I would ask. And. You know, the U.S. military and its coalition partners and its Iraqi partners did a fantastic job of really defeating politically and militarily the 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 antecedents, the Islamic State of Iraq, as it was known in 2007, when it when it meets its defeat, the uh, coalition of tribes and former resistance groups and and defectors uh, to the government, and that's you know, but. There's there was no lasting political change that that the U.S. its coalition or the Iraqi government felt necessary. It's almost like victory deprived them of the impetus to make some significant structural, social, political changes in the in that in that country that would really keep the Islamic State uh, forever in as a periphery you know terrorist group just a terrorist group not an insurgency that didn't happen right and so that i would argue that that you, the us the us tends to look at this as some kind of miraculous reappearance in 2014 but the truth is from 2008 to 2014 what 
what did the United States do? And that's, again, the value for looking back, you know, if even if you're concerned more about great power competition is how are we how do you get political gain or strategic gain out of operational success? Yeah, I think I would just add to that is that while this book is, of course, primarily focused on ISIS and its evolution through these kind of these four historical periods, which is how the book is structured. Um, it's just as much, um, even if by implication, um, a consideration of how ISIS's adversaries have have um, have sought to confront it, and the way that ISIS has kind of assessed its adversaries and developed its um, strategy, its strategic and operational decisions um, accordingly. And so, throughout the book. Um, we were very conscious of trying to make sure that for each of those four historical periods, we provided the reader with an insight into um, the internal thinking. So, for example, uh, you have uh, Zakawi's um, um, 2004 letter um, in in the first part of the book. You have the um, Fluja Memorandum in the in, 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 in the second, you have um, these doctrinal kind of uh, texts in the um, third and fourth, and so I, I, I think that this 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 term that kind of comes up throughout the book is this idea of strategic opportunism, which may kind of sound a, a, a bit of a, a a contradiction in terms. But what we're trying to capture there is this idea that you have they have this consistent um, well manhaj their method they have this method that is that that is consistent and because there is a flexibility to how they move through the different phases of that campaign strategy um um it, it kind of th th there is an opportunism that allows them then to to kind of take advantage of um of, of the missteps and this is a group that makes plenty of mistakes they make a lot and and we we, we kind of try to cover that um as much as possible throughout the, the book but there is a resilience to this group that is very important to also understand. And we came to the point where, when we were thinking about this idea of resilience, how it dealt with and perceived its adversaries, that survival was a very kind of weak criteria for, for resilience. And for us, it was this idea of this operational and strategic kind of continuum throughout its history that, that, that was really important. Um, that was really important there. So I hope that as people read the book, they can kind of say, okay, yes, this is a book primarily about ISIS, but it is um, um, just as much um, a consideration of um, the movement's adversaries and how that they, um, Islamic State, perceive their adversaries. I'm not going to put uh, either of you on the spot and sort of um, predict uh, you know, what's next or what the, you know, coming years have for the organization, uh, the movement, uh, and what form it will take. But I wonder if you could kind of maybe give, uh, give listeners a sense of what options are available to, uh, to the Islamic State group, you know, are they likely to sort of retrench 
uh, in the region as they have at various stages of their development uh, when they've kind of uh, been beaten down a little bit and then reemerge as a force in the region? Are they likely to, and I don't want to draw too many parallels between, say, Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS, but are they likely to, given the number of foreigners that were attracted to fight, especially in Iraq and Syria, um, and sort of disperse, in a sense, uh, the way that al-Qaeda did after um, after the Soviet war in Afghanistan. What are the sort of things that could potentially unfold with the group uh, you know, in the coming years? Um, I'll go ahead and, and take the first stab at, at this and then let, um, let Herrera jump in. Um, the, you know, one, it is, it's, it, you know, it's, indeterminate whether or not they will be able to take advantage of geopolitical uh, turmoil in the region, whether it's U.S., a, a reduced uh, influence or, or uh, presence of the U.S., uh, if it's Iranian weakness, if it's the Iraqi state's uh, inability to, to form a stable government, govern, government and govern. Uh, effectively or more effectively than they have in the last few years. These are all going to give them opportunities. And, uh, but, but nonetheless, they still have, I like to put a lot of focus on, we like to put a lot of focus on them, on what their strategy is, what is their doctrine, how are they recruiting and generating funds to pay uh, soldiers. And the, these are going to be very important uh, and they're hard to assess from afar. Um, the problem is, as, as, as local governance is either, you know, fragmented like it is in Syria, or even if it's, you know, improved over the last two years, it's still uh, only in parts of Syria. Uh, and if Iraq is unable to, to have a more invigorated counterinsurgency campaign on their side, it's going gonna, it's gonna to allow them some uh, opportunity to do what they do and and what they do they have a very effective insurgency doctrine which is really understudied and i'm i'm not even sure we've seen there's glimpses of it in the book we have a strategy document that kind of lays out their 2009 um, kind of ideas of of how to improve their political position but also how to conduct an attritional campaign against security forces uh, and the counter tribal awakening kind of plan that's going to kind of either co-opt or eliminate their local um their local adversaries so these this insurgency doctrine is it's obviously they're going to build on the successes they had in from 2008 to 14 uh in what's really a very patient and potent uh, insurgency in both Iraq and later Syria uh, that that establishes a caliphate. And um, if you want to understand how they're going to go about doing it, and, and insurgency is somewhat intuitive, but I think they have a very unique attritional strategy that's unlike ones we've even seen in, let's say, Vietnam, where, you know, even the Viet Cong got impatient and the North, their North Vietnamese advisors and masters, you know, and pushing the Tet Offensive and and really paying a heavy price for that. And you, you see the Islamic State in 2014 has a pretty, you know, at the collapse of the Iraqi security forces, which ISIS had a lot to do with. 
um, over years of insurgency, of bleeding them dry, of really uh, creating fear and terror through their insurgency campaign and eliminating local supporters uh, over years. You know, that approach is, it's pretty patient. Uh, it's opportunistic when it needs to be, but it, it, it is very measured and that, and it's also very hard to assess from the outside because they're not going to take territory until they're ready to. And that's what makes it difficult. I guess what I would um, just add to that is there are a few things that we can be relatively confident of in terms of, um, I guess, the future of the Islamic State movement. I think that um, staying true to their manhaj, that method, um, the group has every reason to continue to believe that 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 method, that methodology, that that manhaj, that approach um, uh, to revolutionary warfare uh, is solid. Now, we sit here in 2020 and we see an organisation that has been really devastated um, just in terms of their uh, losses. But from an historical perspective, they're probably in a much better position now in 2020 uh, than they were, say, in the aftermath of the Sawa um, 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 over a decade ago. And so um, that should matter uh, to not just researchers but, of course, for strategic policy people as well because um, what, what we need to be looking for is that as, as we're seeing different activities start to emerge as we are in Syria and Iraq and um, we can then use that, that uh, understanding of their campaign strategy to help us to understand what well, whereabouts in the phases of that strategy um, is, is, is the movement. And I think that it will remain committed to that approach. We can also be relatively confident that they will tend to re-emerge where they have emerged before that that will be the rule. There will be exceptions, but that will generally be the rule. And that will be the case for very um, um, human basic reasons that, 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 you know, that you return to places that you are comfortable, particularly those places where they have been able to capture territory um, and kind of um, um, inject their roots into those communities. Um, uh, so we, we can be relatively confident um, of, of that. I think that the heartlands of this movement will remain where they always have been, which is in um, Iraq and Syria. I, I, I think that, you know, when, for example, um, the, the siege of Marawi in uh, the Philippines, when, when that happened and you kind of heard people say, oh, the, 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 the caliphate is moving to Southeast Asia and then something will happen in Africa. Oh, it's moving to Africa now. I, I, I think that um, that that for, for the most part, that's that that's kind of um, those kind of assessments are, are a little bit um, overblown. Now, those trans those global provinces are going to be very very important, and continuing those activities is going to be important. It's going to be important um, for the for for the central core of Islamic State to demonstrate that it is still relevant 
that it's still expanding, um, that it remains global and that it still is global and a, a, a considerable advancement um, that it has made in the last few years. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, I think that it, it's, its core, its heartlands will, um, at least for the foreseeable future, very much re remain in Syria and Iraq. And, you know, the, the, the activities that we've seen in the last uh, 12 to 18 months are kind of indicative of that. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. Um, it, you know, it's a, uh, it's a really sort of thoroughly researched book. It's, it offers some pretty, I think, important insights into the organization, um, its leaders, its evolving strategy, its doctrine, um, and kind of, I think, equips readers to you know, to better answer that question, what, what is likely to come next? And ultimately, I think that that's, um, you know, from a, from a practitioner's perspective, we're all, you know, former practitioners, uh, that's really kind of an important point here. And, and, and your book is an effective contribution to helping us sort of, um, try to make sense of that question. So thanks very much for, uh, for joining us on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks, John. Really appreciate it. And glad to contribute, uh, to your listeners and your readers. Yeah, yeah, John. Thanks, thanks again. You, we, we really appreciate um, th this opportunity. And um, if any of your listeners um, would like to reach out, uh, 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 our email addresses are, are available. We're always happy to answer questions. We've, we've really appreciated um, the feedback that we've received from practitioners and um, and and um, on, on the book. And we're always keen to answer people's questions. So please do get in contact um, um, if you have any follow up questions and. Um, and we're happy to continue to engage in these issues. So, yeah, thanks again, John. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way for us to stay in contact with the incredible community of listeners and readers who share our interests in topics related to modern war. All right, thanks again. Thanks again.